Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. You're probably all familiar with the Chinese philosophical idea of yin and yang. Yin is seen as negative and dark. Yang is seen as positive and bright. And the universe is kind of perceived to be this place where these competing forces of that which is negative and dark competes with a positive and bright energy. It's not necessarily personal, but the universe is this world where these competing forces interact and bounce out the universe. That's actually in significant contrast to the message of Scripture. Scripture certainly tells us that, yes, there's evil in the world. There's righteousness in the world. There's darkness in the world. There's goodness in the world. But Scripture tells us that it's not, number one, impersonal. That there's one being, God, who exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That evil and darkness, light and goodness, are not simply energies. Instead, goodness and truth and beauty come from the divine person of who God is. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That also means there's a personalness to the way in which you experience both truth and goodness as well as darkness. It's not just energy. It's not just a force. There's something very deeply personal in who you are that's connected to both the darkness as well as the goodness and truth and beauty in our world. You might say it like this. You're not simply a human blob caught in the forces at work in our world. Instead of a human blob, you're a human being. You're alive. You're connected to the person of God who is your creator. And there's also tentacles in life, in your life, that go into the world of darkness. Scripture would also say that Light and that which is true and negative and that which is dark aren't simply equal competing forces. Instead, God is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the creator of everything that exists. And so from what we know of scripture, that God was the original creator creator of angelic beings, perfect, beautiful, harmonious, But some of them also chose to rebel against God and therefore became the forces, the personal forces of darkness in our world. God created human beings to be beautiful, good, made in his image. But we as well have been sabotaged and violated by evil and that which is wicked. And so the dark and evil and goodness and truth are not merely opposite forces. They're personal as well as the fact they're not equal, 
that God is the ultimate ruler of all. In Revelation, we've seen there's a lot of counterfeiting that's going on. There's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which, which Nancy Guthrie would call the Holy Trinity. It's counterfeited by the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets who pursue the purposes of darkness and evil in our world. Last week, we also looked at John's introduction of a woman that was used as a metaphor to portray the ancient city of Rome that was also seen in light of the ancient city of Babylon. We saw a contrasting women, you might say. One was the prostitute, representative of evil and darkness, the allure of that which is evil. The other, the bride of Christ, the beautiful picture of those who belong to Jesus. And the way that John arranges the prostitute, he makes it clear that, again, this is personal. It's not simply data, but John would say, there's something in our beings, there's something in your being that's deeply attracted to something that you find alluring. There is something in your life that you are drawn toward, you're moved toward. If it was yin and yang, there might just be forces at work. The Bible says, no, 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 you're much more complex than that. You're not a human blood. You're a human being, and there's something about you as a human being that's allured by that which glitters, that which sparkles, that which you find beautiful, that which you find empowering. And John tells us that it's actually the forces of evil that can glitter as well, that to God belong truth True truth, beauty, justice, honor, and glory. And yet evil also has its way of luring us as human beings toward it. So in John chapter 18, John pictures the utter collapse of all that doesn't exist in honor and glory to God. He created everything. He created this world. But in many ways, our our modern world is distanced and violated from bringing honor and glory to God. And so in, in Revelation chapter 18, we find the utter collapse of everything that's disconnected from God. Things that we find that we think are stable and secure that are foundational to our lives. We find the collapse of them. I'm going to ask Moses to come up. And he's going to read Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Uh, and he's going to stop at Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. So we'll read Revelation 18, 21, all the way through Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. What you'll hear first in Revelation, at the end of Revelation 18, is sort of this reiteration of the utter collapse of Rome, which is sort of the worldly system that lures us in to finding our dependence on things that seem stable and solid and secure, but that in fact are the opposite of that. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 through 10, you'll hear him read about the praise that goes up from those who belong to Jesus, that now the allure of that which is not God-honoring and truly beautiful is finally done away with. So Moses, if you could read Revelation 18, 21 through 19, 10, uh, that would be awesome. Then 
A mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No work of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people. All of you have been slaughtered on the earth. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to you, our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Then he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Thank you, Moses. Some really powerful words there. Uh, we're just going to plow through a number of things. Uh, verse 21 of Revelation 18, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone. Notice again the substantiveness of that idea. A boulder is something large, seems to be immovable, seems to be solid, seems to be secure, connected also to the size of a large millstone, something very weighty, something that you would regard to be permanent. The angel picks this up and throws it into the sea, representing the fact that that which seems to be stable, that that which seems to be secure, that which seems to be worthy of you building your life on is in fact not secure. And said with such violence, 
The great city of Babylon will be, will be thrown down, never to be found again. We'll cover that a little bit later on, but notice it references violence. In other words, that this extrication of evil, this judgment is going to be cataclysmic. Earlier on in Revelation chapter 18, verses 7, 8, the verses we looked at last week, it pictured a little bit kind of the mindset of the prostitute, the, the woman who represents Babylon, the allure of that which is evil. Here's what it says. In her heart she boasts. This is what she says in her heart. I sit enthroned as queen. In other words, I'm powerful. I'm substantive. I'm unmovable. I'm self-sufficient. I'm good. I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. Hear that? I sit enthroned as queen. I'm not a widow. Widows were those who were vulnerable. Widows were those who were vulnerable to catastrophes. They often needed somebody else to help them provide. The essence of the Babylon Roman mindset, the, the modern perspective is that which we have, that which we possess, it's going to last forever. We're good to go. Why do we need God when we've got decent bank accounts, plenty of luxury, plenty of pleasure, plenty of things to enjoy, food that we can eat, water that we can drink? We have plenty at our disposal. Who needs the person of God? when we have everything substantive at our disposal. Nancy Guthrie says, Rome glittered with an abundance of wealth. She flexed her muscles of power. She was attractive and alluring, and everybody who was anybody was engaged with her. Many were attracted to the luxuries, significance, power, and access she dangled in front of them. Tim Chester says this, today, as in Rome, consumption is an end in itself. We're not just shopping to replace what's worn out or broken. We shop for comfort, identity, and fulfillment. We talk about retail therapy. It's salvation language. Again, as we said last week, God created this world. The things that we own, the things that we have are blessings to our lives. They're God's good gifts to us. But what this is pointing out is that God's good gifts can often be things that we become dependent on and that we become secure in. We think that God, God's good gifts actually are the foundation of our lives. That which he blesses us with becomes that which we bind ourselves to, that we place our hope in, that we give our identity to. There's nothing wrong with shopping, but do we do that to the honor and glory of God, or we do that to the honor and glory of ourselves? Do we eat and drink to the honor and glory of God, or do we eat and drink to the honor and glory of God? Do we have our bank accounts and our investments and our houses to the honor and glory of God, knowing that they're gifts from him and we thank him for them every day of our lives? Or do we view our bank accounts or investments in our homes as being on, bringing honor and glory to ourselves? Do they provide, provide the foundation of security and identity in our lives? That's what Revelation is driving at. You know, it's interesting as you go through Revelation 18 and actually some of the other chapters, how significant, 
how significant economics is to the picture of Babylon, Rome, the prostitute, the modern-day world that we live in. In other words, there's something about money in economics that's often directly linked to something much deeper and is at the core of our souls. Often we talk about money, sex, and power as three categories of things that often give us a kind of a black and white report card on whether we simply claim to be worshipers or whether we are actually worshipers of God. Economics, money, is certainly one of them. It's not simply because churches need funds to keep the lights on that we actually incorporate the opportunity to give within the context of our service. And by the way, it's just, I'm kind of thankful that I can talk about this in this particular season. If you've been with us, you, we know that, you know that uh, there was an incredible outpouring of generosity financially for Southridge at the end of 2022. Our congregation has been financially generous at the beginning of 2023. And so I'm thankful that I can stand here and not say this with, a, like, with the kind of a mixed motivation of us needing to pay bills that we can't pay. I can kind of do it with the freedom of just portraying it through the lens of worship. And here's the deal. Giving financially is an act of worship. That's why it's incorporated into the flow of our service. We can eat and drink to the glory of God or eat and drink to ourselves. We can use our money to the glory of ourselves or we can allocate a portion of that to the honor and glory of God. And there's nothing like how you utilize your money that actually provides a report card on what you value the most, on what you find the most foundational, the most secure. It provides a report card on, where, on what your heart is most linked to. In the Old Testament, God instructed his people to give it the first 10% of what they earned to the worship of God in Israel. That was the instructions in the Old Testament. We don't find that black and white instruction in the New Testament. What we do find is that we're to give according to what God has given to us. In the Old Testament, they gave with an understanding of God's grace. And so in the New Testament, we have this deeper, more significant, broader understanding of the magnificence of God's grace given to us in Christ Jesus. And so again, the New Testament doesn't say, here's the law of 10%. No, it simply says, respond in your hearts and give financially in a way that reflects your understanding of the outpouring of God's grace in your life. 10% can be a really helpful barometer just to kind of measure where you might be. But again, that's not necessarily a law. It's in responsiveness to the grace of God. You know, you heard earlier, and you've been around Southridge, you know that 15% of our giving here at Southridge goes outside of our doors to local and global partnerships. If you put in there the increased year-end giving, if you include in that 
Easter project giving, maybe another giving opportunity or two throughout the year, it's probably roughly about 20% goes outside of our doors. The reason for that is, is because, number one, we doubt ourselves. We know that we're in jeopardy of hoarding resources for ourselves. Uh, We know the allure of simply providing for ourselves. So one of the reasons why this church is 15 to 20% is simply because we're so aware of the lure and pull to honor and glorify ourselves. We also do that to be an example and say, like, how can we ask others to be generous if we're not modeling that ourselves? David Platt gives this observation of the North American church. He says, North American Christians give 2.5% of their income to the local church. That's the average. And and the local church gives 2% of their income to overseas mission. That means that out of every $100 that American Christians earn, we give just five cents to global missions. And here's his comment. There is surely no better measure of the extent to which we are deeply embedded in Babylon. I realize those are hard words. But what he says is this. If economics is such a huge way in which we demonstrate what our allegiance is to, what we're allured to, if economics and how we use our resources is such a report card on that, What does it say about what we're allured to? If on the average, followers of Jesus give 2.5% of their income to God. And in the end, with churches that give only 2%, that roughly means that just 5 cents out of every $100 that we make goes to God's mission outside of ourselves. I simply want to encourage you and challenge you with that. I want to encourage you if looking at your checkbook gives you a report card that says, yeah, I'm drawn by the purposes of God in this world. I also want to challenge you that if you look at your finances and your checkbook, does it suggest to you that your heart is allured elsewhere? And maybe you just want to take one small incremental step towards saying, God, I want, the, I want my heart to be drawn not by the prostitute of Babylon, but by the beauty of your grace and truth being spread in this world. It's just pretty amazing how much economics flows in to Revelation chapter 18. A couple of other verses in Uh, We'll move on to chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. Notice his judgments are true. They're just. We'll dive into that more next week. God is not impulsive. He's not rash in his judgment. He's measured, he's true, he's just. He has condemned the great prostitute, notice, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. 
His condemning and judging that which represents the corruption of his beautiful creation. Listen, friends, God created this world to be a beautiful place. He created it with harmony, love, generosity, peace, compassion, and truthfulness. It's been violated and corrupted by the forces of evil. And God's judgment isn't simply flying off the handle. It's actually focused and targeted and measured on that which corrupts the earth. He has avenged on her the blood of a servant. Verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Again, these are the words of those who faithfully follow after Jesus praising him, thanking him for issuing judgment, for extricating that which is evil out of the world. Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Again, we said in Revelation, there's a prostitute woman that pictures the allure of sin and evil or that which, is, that which we're tempted to base our lives on. Then there's the bride of Christ, those who belong to the person of Jesus. Listen, friends, we're not simply human blobs. You're a human being. You're a human being who's being drawn by something. You're a human being that finds something beautiful. You're a human being that isn't simply caught in a world where there's equal and counter forces of good and evil. Instead, you're a personal human being whose heart needs to be channeled, steered, and focused toward that which is beautiful. You have to be an active participant in where your heart is headed. Don't go by default. Don't go by what comes most natural and easy. Don't go by where you coast. You're an active participant in this world. You're an active participant in the spiritual realities that we live in. Be an active participant and steer and guide your heart toward that which is beautiful and true. You have to be active. This week I just put together some statements that talk about how what we do can be done in defiance of Babylon or in worship to the Lamb. Let me just kind of go through these. We sing, when we sing, we sing in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we read Scripture, we read Scripture in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we pray to the God of heaven, who is creator and redeemer, we pray in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we delight in truth, beauty, and goodness, we do so in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we choose to pursue sexual holiness by enjoying sexuality within husband-wife marriage relationship rather than pursuing sexual pleasure based on our autonomous choices, we live in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we choose personal sacrifice of pleasure and convenience for the sake of serving someone else, we serve in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we choose to persevere in trusting the Lord through doubt, hardship, and difficulty, we persevere in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. 
When we give financially, we give in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we love those who disagree with us and we show grace to our enemies, we love in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we relinquish and surrender autonomy and choose obedience, we obey and submit ourselves to God in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. When we believe and follow God's revelation of himself in Scripture rather than our human intuition, we believe and follow, we believe and follow in defiance of Babylon and in worship of the Lamb. Listen, friends, you are not a human blob. You are a human being. Your heart is headed somewhere. Is it headed toward worship of the Lamb and in defiance of Babylon? And as Moses to come, he's going to read Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Uh, there's going to be some kind of grotesque language in this. It talks again about the, the battle, the overcoming of the forces of darkness with the all-power conquering might of Christ. And so there's actually some grotesque language in this. Uh, we'll take apart this a little bit more next week. We'll, I'll make a few comments after Moses reads, but just focus in here, zone in here, and just picture, let these words get etched in your mind of the overthrow, the power of Christ in overthrowing evil and bringing about the judgment of all that is wicked. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. His, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses, of riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. 
Thank you, Moses. Again, we'll cover some of this next week. Just a few verses, uh, 19, 11, and following. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Again, this is who Jesus is. He's not out of control. He's faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. It's not simply out of anger that's out of control. It's the pursuit of justice against that which has corrupted his creation. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire. We saw that in John's vision of him in Revelation chapter 1. And on his head are many crowns. Remember on the beast, I think it was, there were seven crowns. Jesus has many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Might be the blood of his enemies, might be his own blood from the sacrifice he paid on the cross, might be a combination, might be the blood of the martyrs. And his name is the word of God. God's word is not passive, it's not docile, it executes his will. It's action-oriented. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. Again, kind of connected to the word of God, being who he is, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. An iron scepter was often used by shepherds to ward off predators that would destroy the sheep, would bring chaos and violence to the sheep. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Again, we'll get to some of these verses again next week, but in closing, let me just kind of frame this in this way. Probably all of us know someone, maybe who had cancer, and it was found to be inoperable because the cancer was too kind of interwoven with maybe brain tissue, or maybe it's cancer around their spinal cord. And so the, the, the cancerous tumor had its tentacles wrapped around organs so intricately that it could not be removed. When Jesus comes to judge, there is going to be nothing that is too complex for him to get to the bottom of. Jesus will do judgment with the sharpness of a scalpel. He will be able to remove that which is impure that which corrupts his creation. There will, listen friends, there will be no cancer that Jesus will not operate on. You might have seen some of the New York Times articles end of February, beginning of March that talked about the incredible, difficult, and challenging condition of child migrant workers, the level of abuse that they undergo, the horrific conditions in which they work. I don't know even quite how I probably benefit from that. All I know is that evil is intertwined in our world. Remember back on Super Bowl Sunday, I saw data somewhere that the Super Bowl was played in the stadium in Glendale, Arizona. I think it was State Farm Stadium. And there was a comment made that the number of children abused and trafficked 
every day in our world would fill that stadium 189 times every day. Listen, friends, our world is wrapped in the tentacles of evil. And it will take a cataclysmic work of God event for evil to be extricated. But God will extricate evil. He will judge it. He will judge that which corrupts his beautiful and good creation. And to that we say through his grace, hallelujah. And I stand to come up and we're going to finish off our service by simply singing the doxology. As it comes, let me read this verse from Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Listen, friends, sin is not tame. Sin is not mild. Sin brings death to God's beautiful creation. Sin corrupts. Sin brings devastation wherever it's entwined. And one of these days, God is going to untangle the mess. He just will. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus came, died on the cross, to take the curse of sin on himself. He chose to judge himself so that he could bring forgiveness to us. So the question we need to wrestle with is have you embraced Jesus judging himself and received forgiveness? Or will there come a day when you stand metaphorically naked before him and you're judged for your own corruption. Hallelujah. Praise be to God that he provided a way of salvation, a way of rescue, a way of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's stand and sing the doxology. Let's praise God who is judge. Let's praise God who is redeemer. Let's praise praise God who will one day come again to bring about judgment on that which is corrupt and bring eternal life. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise
God, we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. Thank you for your work in this world. We know that one day you will come to judge that which is unrighteous. But thank you for forgiveness that's offered in your name through the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross. Thank you for providing eternal life. We receive that from you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and everyone who agreed said, Amen. 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 Our prayer team will be down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. Our annual meeting will be in this room at about 10 minutes or so. Certainly welcome to come back for that. God bless and have a great day.